Welcome to the Nordic Food Tech Podcast. On this show, we share the stories of how different actors up and down the value chain are working to take climate action through food. It's all about inspiring collaboration, discussing the good that is happening, the challenges we share, and realizing a common vision for our future food system. I'm your host, Annalisa Winther, and let's jump in. The Nordics are the top coffee drinkers in the world. Finland comes in at number one, consuming 26.5 pounds per capita, followed by Norway, Iceland, Denmark, the Netherlands, and then Sweden. But as the largest coffee consumers in the world, what is our role when it comes to promoting sustainability, equity, and fair practices in every cup? That is what we explore in today's episode with Klaus Thompson, one of the founders of Coffee Collective, a specialty coffee micro-roastery in Denmark with a chain of coffee shops, a bakery, and a web shop supporting international customers. Their goal is to explore and unfold exceptional coffee experiences in a manner that gives better living conditions to coffee farmers across the globe. Ultimately, their dream is for a coffee farmer in Kenya to obtain the same status and living conditions as a wine grower in France. The quality of their coffee is determined by three links, the farmer, the roaster, and the barista. Coffee Collective analyzes each step from seed to cup, collaborating with the links in different ways to explore coffee's taste potential. Coffee Collective is also known for pioneering the direct trade method, where they laid out a distinct set of criteria for trading with producers. Beyond ensuring financial sustainability for the farmers they work with, Coffee Collective has also made the commitment to be 100% carbon neutral by 2022, which is just around the corner. We also talk about them being a benefit corporation, which is a legal tool to create a solid foundation for mission alignment and value creation. If you're really into this episode, coffee, sustainability, or you just want to get nerdy with me about taste, I highly recommend you check out the sister episode to this podcast with Tim Wendelbow, who is also a world barista champion and the owner of one of Norway's best coffee shops and roasteries. Tim has worked firsthand as a farmer, roaster, and barista. He bought his own farm in Colombia, where he has been experimenting and learning about biological farming or growing coffee without the use of pesticides or mineral fertilizers. It's a really fun story and a look at Tim's career in chasing great taste to the roots. The link to the podcast with Tim, as well as Copy Collective Sustainability Report, can be found in the bio of this episode or at www.nordicfoodtech.io. Hi, Klaus. Welcome to the Nordic Food Tech Podcast. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me. So I would love to start with the founding story of how Coffee Collective got off the ground. Yeah, well, we started back in uh, 2007 and we were uh, three, at that time, younger baristas. Um, we had been baristas for a number of years and at this point in our career, we had actually moved in different directions. So I was responsible for a coffee shop. Uh, our uh, partner, Peter Dupont, was responsible for a roastery. And uh, the third guy was in Casper uh, Engel was in a wholesale operation, 
And um, we started out actually from working together in another company and realizing that there was a lot of stuff, a lot of ideas, a lot of things we could do. That we felt we could do better. Um, and that's always a good sort of stepping stone for doing your own thing. Um, so we, uh, we got off the ground back then. Uh, I had won the World Barista Championship the year before. And that also created some opportunities for talking about coffee and traveling the world, learning about coffee and bringing some of those experiences back to Denmark where we could see the coffee market was still in a very early stage and there wasn't really a lot of things going on at that point. So we thought, uh, well, we got to do it ourselves. What was it back then that you thought you could do better? We basically sat down in the beginning and actually talked about what could we improve in that former company we worked in. And it was mostly about the way that coffee is being bought and sold. So we were looking at a market at the time that saw increasing prices to consumers. Um, the price of cafe latte on the high streets of Europe were at an all-time high. But at the same time, this was at the back end of what was named the coffee crisis which uh, you can say is a continuous crisis in a lot of ways, but it, it was specifically bad in those years that coffee farmers weren't getting paid even the cost of production of coffee, meaning that several thousand, hundreds of thousands of farmers were going basically bankrupt, except you can't just declare bankruptcy. So they would abandon their farms with beautiful ripe coffee cherries hanging on the trees and seek other opportunities. Um, one of the escalations of the story was coffee farmers uh, that was found dead in a car having driven from Mexico to United States in pursuit of uh, a better uh, life. Wow. And I think that was, uh, it was very disheartening to see this happening uh, at a time where coffee was also sort of going on the rise. Um, you had Starbucks opening up globally and so on. So we sat down and said, well, there is clearly money here uh, at the consuming end of the world. Um, people are willing to spend money on good coffee experiences. But we need to create a system where that value gets brought back to the farmers. Otherwise, it's a very short-sighted um, strategy for developing coffee. And I don't think you can really talk about coffee without acknowledging that it's, uh, it has a very dark colonial past. Um, coffee was for many years driven on slave labor. And to this day, it's, it's being looked at as something that is readily available at a low price instead of being acknowledged as a premium, um, yeah, a premium product. Uh, instead, it's being looked at as just a commodity, something that mm. it's interchangeable with other coffees instead of saying, no, this coffee has a value on its own. So those were the kind of ideas we sat down with, uh, very sort of um, fueled by anger and uh, sort of <laughs> ideals that we want to shake up the coffee world, want to disrupt this scene that's, that's a rotten world, um, and at the same time do it in a way where those kind of coffee experiences that we had, those kind of moments where we tasted a coffee and thought, this is ridiculously good, how can coffee taste like this? We really wanted to share that with a broader audience having a coffee shop where we could geek out and nerd and all this, but at the same time, share the excitement with more people. So that was sort of the two, sort of each end, the farmer end and one end that we wanted to link closer with the consumers on the other end, bringing those two together and kind of be a facilitator of, of that meeting, mm. um, so to speak. 
And just to add a little bit more context, as you were saying, in 2007, specialty coffee wasn't as big or as popular as it is today. So what trend were you noticing or tapping into at that point that you saw emerging? I mean, we have definitely seen from being in the United States that uh, coffee shops could be super busy. Micro roasteries could be a thing that gained a wider audience and were acknowledged for their presence and their quality and so on. And, and that really hadn't happened in Denmark at the time at all. Um, coffee was still something you just bought in the supermarket and that was it. Um, so we brought back some of those experiences uh, doing barista exchanges and working in Portland, Oregon at a, at a very hip uh, coffee shop there. We kind of knew, okay, there, there is really a, the basis for something big here. But we also had a number of years being behind the bar in, in the old coffee shop, seeing that it's not just a small niche uh, and that people are actually smarter than a lot of uh, companies give them credit for. Um, so we heard all the time when we started out that ah, people can't taste the difference. And we were on the other side of the counter thinking, well, they can taste the difference. It's actually pretty clear that people can see the difference between these two Kenyan coffees. Uh, they can taste the difference between the lower quality and the higher quality, and they're willing to pay for it and they're interested. So those experiences kind of gave us the confidence to say, no, no, we, we believe there's something here. Let's go full steam ahead. I got to ask you, do you remember what your first mind-blowing coffee taste experience was where you realized what the potential or the quality could be? There, there's a few that comes to mind. The first one is probably more... No, the first one that I really can think of, I was actually already working in coffee. Um, so not really on a professional level, but I was working at Starbucks and just to get a job. And it was in London and, you know, I moved to the big city and so on. But I remember going to my, my then uh, girlfriend's coffee shop. She was working at a competing company um, called Coffee Republic. And there was a guy there from Mexico who, uh, who was, he was like maybe five, six years older than, than me at the time. And he was really into coffee. And I remember him actually brewing me an espresso and having this moment of, whoa, this mm. is completely different than whatever we're pushing out of the machine at, at Starbucks. And this, this kind of like moment of, wow, there, there's something like completely unique to espresso. Um, and also the realization, the importance of, whoa, th that was this guy. It wasn't the bean, it wasn't the machine, but it was this guy taking it seriously. That made all the difference. And then another epiphany moment was actually in Norway, um, about a year later where I went to Bergen on a, on a trip and bought some beans and I went back to the town I was living in in the, the middle of Norway at the time and, and I bought a little hand grinder and grinding that coffee and brewing it on you know the cleanest Norwegian mountain water and sitting there enjoying that cup with a good book and the view of these snow-covered mountains and just having this fragrance of this which was an Ethiopian uh, Harar which I probably wouldn't like as much today, but at the time it was really like an amazing intensity of flavors. And I remember that as being like an epiphany moment of, wow, this is just like such a complex flavor to dive into and yeah, being completely swooned away by it. Mm. And I hear in those stories that there are a few different components that go into it. There's the person that makes the coffee or the barista, there's the roaster, and then there's the producer. And that 
they all need to come together to create that ideal cup or experience. So what is it that goes into considering what makes great taste? Well, it's exactly those three things that you, you point out. So unlike a lot of other products where you just have one producer, we are working with three producers, basically. You have your raw material coming from the farmer at one end, which doesn't taste anything like coffee as we know it. So green coffee, we usually say, has the locked-in potential. It has all the same things that you're looking for in wine. It has terroir, the sense of uh, the place, the soil conditions, the microclimate, which varieties are grown, how they're grown. Is it organic soil or is it just uh, conventional? Um, how it's processed and everything. That's locked in to the green bean. But if you taste a green coffee bean, you're not getting any of that. A green coffee tastes and smells basically like hay or grass, maybe dried peas. It's a dried agricultural product. So it has just that kind of aroma. And just to pause you for a second, what is green coffee? It's just the pre-roasted coffee? Yes, exactly. So it's the, it's the dried um, seed of the coffee cherry or coffee berry to be exact. We just call them coffee cherries because they have the similar size and color as a cherry. And inside each cherry, there's two seeds or kernels, and that's the beans. So it has nothing to do with the bean, basically, except the shape is similar. And, uh, and the green coffee is, is dried to uh, about 9.5-11% moisture, uh, so it can stay safe food-wise for a long time. It will still diminish in quality over time, uh, which is also a, a thing we talk a lot about, freshness of the green coffee. But then that needs to be roasted to release all that potential. So until it's roasted, you don't really have anything, um, how to say, liberated in the bean. So the roasting process is just as, um, how to say, it's probably just as important. Well, maybe not just as important, but it, you can take the best green coffee in the world and you can destroy it in roasting or you can bring out its full potential. Um, and anywhere in between, you can go in a hundred different ways, depending on how you roast that coffee. Um, I've seen examples of even the same coffee bean being roasted in even the same time span and to the same end uh, degree or end color, but with varying roast profiles that have made that particular coffee taste like it was like from four different countries. Wow. So that says something about the effect that roasting has on the bean and the importance of the roast profile. Is the roaster what we'd consider the producer in this equation if the farmer creates the coffee cherry? No, we wouldn't. We would say that the producer is the farmer or the cooperative or whoever has produced the outset for that coffee. And in our optic, we would actually see the roaster more as, I don't know, the, the sort of, yeah, I don't know how to, like what I can, make of comparison. Um, I think winemaking is one that comes to mind in that you have the terroir where you source the grapes, yeah. then you have the winemaker, and then you have the restaurant or home that provides the yeah, contextual but, experience around it. But the difference with wine is that with wine, you typically have a producer, which is the person having the vineyards and growing the wine and so on, who's also um, yeah, pressing the grapes and fermenting and actually making the wine and putting it in a bottle and you actually have a finished product from the farmer where in coffee you have this extra step of the roaster that's very important as well and like if 
if a, if a vineyard sells a bottle of wine, they can have a pretty clear idea about what the consumer ends up with. But in coffee, you have the roaster in the middle who can take it in many different directions. Mm. But then to make it more complicated, you also have to brew the coffee. So that's the third equation. So you have the farmer, the roaster, and the barista, or whoever brews the coffee at the end, making it much more complex than a lot of other products out there. And just like the, the roaster is completely dependent on the quality of the raw product, the green coffee, you who are brewing it is just as dependent on the quality of the roasted coffee. Um, and so we, when we started our company and, and to this day, we think about this very holistically. There is no link in that chain that's more important than the other. At any point, you can lose it all. But also at any point, you can gain it all. You can strive to optimize quality and you can try to improve the product all the way from the farmer to it's in the cup right there in front of you and you can sip it. How do you create that communication and trust to ensure quality? We work a lot with transparency in everything we do. And we, from the outset, said that one of our goals is to bring the farmers closer to the consumer by by doing these things such as visiting them at least once a year, a lot of them twice a year, both to meet them as, as equals, um, for us to come down and see what are they actually doing at farm level and showcase that back to our audience in Denmark. I think the more we can make people aware about all these intricacies of producing coffee, like how hard it actually is to produce coffee and what goes on, the more we'll enlighten them, the more we'll make it interesting for them, the more we'll also make them appreciate why coffee should cost more than you're paying at the supermarket, why it's actually a, a product that has a, a lot of inherent value. So from the beginning, even when, yeah, before we even had a coffee shop, we determined that it was super important for us to have that sort of direct relationship with the farmers and not have any middlemen being a yeah, sort of a wall between us and the farmers. Um, we work also on transparency when it comes to pricing, which we'll dive into a little later, I think, because that is hugely important as well. Um, mm -hmm. And so I want to take it back a little to also make sure that I really understand the supply chain and what goes into making great coffee that tastes great. So one is that the raw material needs to be really good, and then that goes on to the roaster, and then the producer, and then the barista who's, and no, and actually the producer doesn't really matter in any of this. No, when, and that, that's actually the tricky thing with coffee, because I think for the way people are brought up with coffee on a grand scale, if you look at supermarket coffee, the producer is typically the roastery. It will be uh, some name of a big brand roastery that's probably owned by Nestle or Kraft or, or some other conglomerate. Uh, and they probably bought like local roasteries in all the different countries around the world and kept that brand name um, to make it a little more local. Um, but that's not a producer. The producer, in our view, is the farmer. Uh, the farmer is the one who creates like all the opportunity for all the rest of the people to do anything. Without the farmers, there's no coffee. There's nothing to work on. Mm. Um, so in our view, the producer is the coffee farmer. Right. And so when we talk about specialty coffee, in the beginning, we were saying a little bit that coffee is seen as one commodity. There is one price on the stock exchange. But you really view the value of the farmer and understand the worth and how much work goes into it. 
So can you talk a little bit about how you recognize that? Yeah, so uh, the, most of the coffee sold globally is based on what is called the C price, which is a stock exchange uh, price that is, of course, driven both by supply and demand, but it's actually not just supply and demand. It's very much speculation. Um, it's, it's being dealt with in, in futures. So that means that people can sit there and speculate what is the harvest next year in Brazil going to be like, and they can buy up um, stock. And, and it's popular said that if it was just um, supply and demand, we wouldn't see the fluctuations in prices that we are seeing. They're probably multiplied by six times just because of speculation. And the price on the, the, the C market price is it's fluctuating a lot, creating a lot of uncertainty for coffee farmers. And historically, it's, it's really, really low. And it's actually, at a, for a very long time, below the cost of production. And this seems absurd to us. If, if we were running any business in Denmark and we weren't meeting our cost of production, we'd just go bankrupt. That's not really the case for a coffee farmer. They're just kept in complete uh, poverty instead. So the C market price is, is kind of a horrible price. It's, it's uh, the worst of capitalism, in my view. Um, it was regulated until uh, sometimes in the 90s when the ICO collapsed and the, that was the International Coffee Organization. And these regulations uh, went out the window and that was what caused the coffee crisis. Um, then you have fair trade, which builds on the C market price. So fair trade is kind of calculated to say, okay, what is the, the cost price of producing coffee? And that should be a minimum price that, that is paid to the farmer or to be more correct to the exporting cooperative because they don't work with single farmers. They only work with cooperatives. When the C market price goes above that level, which is $1.20 per, per pound of green coffee, um, then they add a premium of 20 cents. But that is still nowhere near enough. The, the bottom price in many calculations is actually a dollar and 35 per pound, 50 cents higher than the factoring trade bottom price. And it, I think it makes sense to say as well that producing coffee where you're just making a complete minimum wage is one thing. I wish all coffees at least lived up to that. But it's not a premium that forces any kind of quality or any kind of incentive for coffee farmers to say to tell their kids, go produce coffee, it's a great business. On the contrary, a lot of coffee farmers around the world tell their kids, seek other opportunities. A lot of kids are seeing, well, they've seen their parents and their grandparents work themselves like crazy, not even being able to make a, a, a good income or make a decent living. So there's something inherently wrong in that system. So when we set out, we really wanted to say that that just we have to work on getting more value to the farmer. And it means coffee has to be more expensive than four bags for 100 kronas in the supermarket, these deals that they lure in people with. Um, but we also have to build a system where coffee isn't changing hands so many times from the farmer to an end up uh, for the consumer in Denmark. Mm. Popularly said, coffee is one of the most traded commodities. It's often said that it's second only to oil. That's actually not true, but it's, it sounds great. <laughs> but uh, it's probably more on like a 10th place or something. 
But coffee does change hands a lot of times from it leaves a farmer to someone buys the maybe the cherries to the dry mill to the exporter to an importer that might sell it to another importer in Europe that then sells it to a roastery to a supermarket and so on. Mm. And of course, if everybody has to make money in that chain, um, either the coffee becomes too expensive at the end or what happens is it just becomes too cheap for the farmers. I'd love to talk a little bit about the journey of how you arrived at how you do business today, because you were part of the group that pioneered direct trade, and we just mentioned fair trade as an idea and a concept. So can you talk about what direct trade is and how that came about? Yeah, so direct trade was this idea that we would involve ourselves more with the farmers. We would go directly to the source. And the idea was also to have a term that would ring a bell with consumers in Denmark. Something that would ring a bell in the way that they would notice, okay, here's something going on that's different. Um, and direct trade was internationally also something that a lot of roasteries were working on. Um, but the problem was probably that everybody had their different interpretations of what direct trade was. And so over time, we saw a lot of companies misusing the term. Um, and in the end, we've actually sort of discontinued our usage of direct trade as a consequence and rather focus on the things we do and trying to be more transparent in what we do. But that being said, we, we put some guidelines for ourselves saying like, this is the amount of money that we should minimum pay to the farmers uh, and, and that we should go and visit them every year to have that sort of direct link, see each other eye to eye and learn and also influence their way of uh, production in a, in a gentle manner. Mm -hmm. And from what I read, part of setting that price is 25% above fair trade price, in addition to the fact that you cut out the middlemen and you actually go negotiate with them at the farm visiting every year regarding how much you're going to yeah. pay for the coffee. Yeah, but that was also one of the things that we looked at after a while was saying like, okay, that was the 25%, but in reality, we were paying a lot more than that. And so we actually changed our focus saying instead of just committing to like a minimum, let's just be 100% transparent. Let's put on the bags what we're actually paying to the farmers. Let's open the books. And this, this, this is both a crazy and a great idea. It's crazy because if you imagine going to a clothing shop and looking in the back of your t-shirt, what was the cost price for that t-shirt? You probably wouldn't pay the money you're paying for it. Mm-hmm. And, and that was, of course, the fear that people would be like, what, you paid this, but it cost this. But we were willing to take on that challenge because we wanted to create a conversation with consumers about what is being paid for coffee. We have nothing to hide. We know that we're paying more than probably any other roaster in Denmark and most in all of the world, actually, for the green coffee that we're buying. We're proud about that. So we should showcase that. Um, in a way where people will hopefully think about, well, what are they paying? Well, what are other people paying? What is this other micro that's charging the same for the coffee? What are they actually paying for their coffee? What is going to the farmer when you're seeing coffee on the shelves in the supermarket? So it was a way of trying to create a ripple effect, trying to get consumers to ask questions and be a little bit aware about what actually goes back to the farmer when I'm paying for my coffee. Have you seen an impact with the consumers that this is working as a communication tool more than the direct trade certification or that language? Yeah, I think it, I think it was better because with the with direct trade, 
a lot of roasteries were starting to say it was direct trade. We had uh, one of the or the biggest uh, Swedish chain of coffee shops calling it direct trade and uh, sending lawyers and so on saying like, oh, they can use it too, even though we had actually protected the trademark in Denmark. Um, and at that point, we were just kind of, well, if, if you really want to use it and you don't want to commit to being open and transparent, then we'll skip it, but we'll open our books. And then hopefully at some point, consumers will demand that you open your books too. And I think that would be a, a good push for saying, well, somehow we can also influence the, the grander scheme of things. We can disrupt the, the coffee world on a more broad level by going out there and saying, well, this is the new standard. Be transparent or don't claim anything. And at this point, you're not the only coffee company that's opened up your books, right? Yes. So we were part of a, an initiative called Transparent Trade that um, was actually started by some uh, economists uh, in the United States. Uh, I think it was two professors and I can't remember what university they're at. Um, but they started this because they had a keen interest in in supply chain and in uh, transparency on, in, in trading in general, but particular in coffee. Uh, and we were we were founding a member of uh, what they called the pledge, which was a pledge for roasteries to commit to being completely transparent and showcasing for all their coffee what goes back to the farmers. And I think this was important because what happens a lot of time is that you have companies who will buy a fair trade coffee or Rainforest Alliance certified coffee. And whenever a journalist calls up and asks critical questions about well, what's, what's your coffee like? They will just kind of greenwash and say, well, we have this coffee that's certified by these, and so it must be good because it's certified. Where when we look at it, we say, well, those certifications, they're not that great. They're like the bare minimum. They're like the hygiene factor, um, but they're really not good enough. So, yeah, so hopefully we can over time influence them to be to, to join something like uh, the pledge. I think we started out with 15 roasteries and I think there's about 45 roasteries signed on to the pledge now and it's, it's hopefully growing. That's fantastic. And considering that you are once again pioneering in terms of setting the standards that you believe should be the baseline for the industry, I would love to spend a little bit more time talking about prices and how you're breaking that down and building it back up. And listeners, it's a bit complicated, so please bear with us. But if we can, I'd love to start with the quality bonus. And what is that? The idea of that is to, uh, to also have a communication tool to audience or to customers. Um, because we all know this going into a shop, you're looking at all these bags of coffee, and it can be hard if we start putting on, which we did originally, putting on the dollars per pound, FOB. It's all these terms that people have no idea about. So the quality bonus is, is two things, basically. It's a way of showing what do we pay for the coffee compared to the C market price in percentage. And that's at the time we enter the contract, it's the C market price on that day for that kind of coffee, that grade of coffee. And then the percentage that we paid above that. Um, I have a graph uh, indicating also visually in the coffee shops how much above it is. And I think actually that visual tool, that graph, is even better for the understanding for people. Um, the other thing is that we also want to indicate that we are paying for quality. So the price that we pay is 
depending on the quality of the coffee. If it's an astonishing quality, the price should be really high. We explain this the other way to farmers as well, saying that if you deliver a coffee that's just an amazing quality, we can go back and ask our Danish customers to pay a lot more for that coffee, bringing more value back to you. Mm -hmm. We've also set for our company a different kind of um, a pricing model. So typically, if you're buying and selling a good, you will um, have a, you will take that the, your cost price and you'll multiply it by maybe two or two and a half, and you'll sell it on. But in that case, that makes the more expensive coffees really expensive at the end. And we decided from the beginning to, to say that, well, we as a roastery have the same kind of production cost, regardless of the price of the green coffee. And we thought it would be more transparent to say, let's we put a fixed price on what we charge or what we put on to run our roastery to gas and wages and rent and profit and so on. But it's the same uh, nominal price on every coffee. So the price that you're paying as a, as a consumer is actually the price difference. It's actually what ref reflects what the farmer actually got out of it, which we think, again, is more fair. Mm. And I want to relate this back to taste because one thing I'm hearing is that instead of thinking of coffee as this blanket commodity, one size fits all, it's all the same, same price, you're actually creating a lot of differentiation and that a consumer would start to be able to understand I'm paying a premium for this maybe because it's more rare or it's tastes better or it took longer to produce or whatever it is, yes. but that you start um, looking at it. And I know similarly, when we talk about taste, there's different notes of coffee, there's different uh yeah, things that go into it. I'm I'm a novice myself, but it it makes me think that I guess similar to wine. Just bringing that up again, there's um there's a link there where you start to get nerdier and nerdier and nerdier, enable more people to tap into the differentiation of the market. Yeah, and similar to wine, it's it's a, it's a fun analogy for us to use as well because I think even if you're not into wine you still know that there are wines that cost 40 kronos and there's wines that cost thousands of kronos. You know that there are this huge price differentiation between the top and the bottom. And you acknowledge that. And even if you're, if you're not an avid wine drinker, you know that there's people out there who can geek out about this and that it's a world that you kind of respect regardless. Where that's kind of what we want with coffee. We want people to acknowledge that. We want people to think about a coffee farmer like a wine producer about they are specialists they're people who grow certain varieties and they will process coffee in different ways to bring out different flavors and i think to a large extent we've succeeded with that um, it was also part of our mission to not just shop around and buy different coffees every year but to build up long-term relationship and part of the idea with that was to build a brand around each of the farmers um, be it a specific farmer or a, a cooperative of farmers or whatever it is. And it's been really interesting to see over the years how that has grown, that people are now coming into our shops, not just asking for a Kenyan, but for Kiini as the specific cooperative, because they know that coffee is just astonishing. Mm. Um, so in that way, I think, yeah, that, that's bringing in that analogy to, to wine a lot. 
So you get the the coffee label that you're then going for. And, and I did read that as well, that you're very focused on growing scale with one producer. So once you like them, you focus on holding that relationship for a long time. And as popularity grows, demand grows, that you then enable them to grow their business. Yeah, and that's actually been a real challenge for us because what happened with specialty coffee within the last 10 years has been that more and more micro roasteries pop up around. And a lot of them are not buying directly. A lot of them are buying from importers in Europe. And most of the importers are pretty good. They're good at finding good coffees and bringing them to market. Of course, it's a, an additional layer. It's additional barrier between the roaster and the farmer. It's also another um, another company who has to make a profit for it, so it becomes more expensive. But uh, but um, with that development, we have also seen this interest in having like a new coffee on the menu every month, like new exciting things to showcase. Where our model from the beginning was actually different. We we said we will be happy if we just have three different coffees on the menu to begin with, because we would rather you know get to, to a serious point in the relationship with these farmers. We'd rather have three coffees that we can stand fully behind, knowing who produced it and knowing how to roast that well as well, rather than just having a broad menu. Um, and that also meant that as we grew, we would rather grow a bit more volume on each of the producers rather than just pan out and having too many different coffees. Um, ideally, we would want to get to buying a full container from each farmer because that also lowers the shipping cost. But it was crazy. A container is about, yeah, depending on, on where the coffee is from, it's about 300 bags of coffee. The first coffee we bought in our company was from a farm in Guatemala called Vista Hermosa. And we bought 20 bags and actually put that into our own container because we wanted to get it directly to us. And, and I remember the stories from the dry mill. They were like, what is going on here? There's this little corner in this full container with coffee just for one place why don't you wait a couple of months and consolidate it with someone else but for us it was important to get that coffee home fresh because that's a big part of the quality but it's also important to get it as direct as possible and the shipping cost actually didn't amount to that much more per bag anyway so i remember hearing another interview with you where you said that from day one you were already getting your own containers and getting it direct and kind of busting some myths around that this is hard to do. It's not that hard to yeah. do. And you've proven that you can do it. Um, can you just yeah. mention anything about that first experience of figuring out that you can, <laughs> you can enable this kind of direct shipping? Yeah, I think there, there's definitely a lot of small groceries still to this day who are super afraid of it. And they think, oh, we're too small to do it and so on. But it just requires a little bit of work and determination and maybe also a level of trust to the farmers that they will deliver the quality that, that they said they will deliver. Um, and then it, the work part is mostly learning about how does international trade go on? Like what are these terms like FOB and CAD and so on? But to be honest, it's, it's not that difficult. Like if you call up one of the shipping companies, they are incredibly helpful because that's their business is shipping containers around the world. They will help you with all this, uh, yeah, all this stuff going on. But I actually noticed an interesting trend. I met with a, with a person from uh, Maersk, the biggest shipping company in the world, I think, uh, some years ago, and they were building a platform for uh, enabling trade between companies like us and producers in Africa and, and third world countries. 
Um, and I think actually they have started their own company now that uh, I saw some news the other day about that happening. So there's a lot in, in tech, in, in the industry in general, that, that helps facilitate these kind of things. And I mean, back then we didn't have the phone number of the farmers. We might have an email and it was like super complicated. Now I have phone numbers and WhatsApp contacts to hundreds of farmers and it's easy for them to reach out to me. We have new farmer relationships that were kickstart through Instagram when they message us and send us pictures there and we're on like a seven-year relationship with one of those farmers now. So the world has really opened up. So I don't think, I don't think there's any excuses there. If there's a will, mm. there's definitely a way. Mm. Wow. So going back to this idea of rewarding quality and rewarding the hard work that goes into picking coffee, which is something that largely happens by hand. And I don't even know if people really totally understand that. Uh, how is it that you go from someone sending you a picture on Instagram and you're like, they look like they have a good farm and a good operation that you then figure out their quality of their coffee, knowing that when it's green, it has a totally different profile than when it gets roasted and then gets passed on to the barista. Yeah. So we, uh, we will first of all, probably go visit that farmer and seeing what is, what is he actually or she actually like? What is the farm like? What kind of conditions are there? Is it people we trust? Is it people we would like to work with? Um, and then we'll taste the coffee or maybe we'll taste the coffee first and see if it's even worth going there or, or so on. But um, the, the realities of it is that you do a, what is called a sample roast, which is a very light, very quick actual roasting of the coffee. Uh, then you do a cupping, which is a, a standardized way of tasting coffee. That's the same when you go to Brazil or Kenya or here in Copenhagen. Um, and from that, you can evaluate the different flavor attributes of the coffee. We look for certain things. We look for uh, cleanliness, first of all. The coffee has to be clean. That's a technical term, but it means there can't be any taints, any faults. And that could be uh, unripened uh, coffee cherries being picked. It could be insect damage or mold or improper drying or storage and stuff like that. So that's the first. And that will actually rule out quite a lot of coffees, which is a pity because all those things are things that the farmer could fix if they have the knowledge and the, the means to do it. Then we look for sweetness. We look for acidity. We look for low bitterness. Mouthfeel that it's pleasing and doesn't have to be a, a big coffee or have a huge body. It can actually be a light mouthfeel, but it has to be interesting and, and have a nice tactile feeling. And then we, uh, we especially look for the aromas as well, which is a huge part. Coffee is one of the most complex uh, beverages on the planet. It's, uh, I talked to a flavor company at one point that did gas chromatography of coffee. And they identified over 1,200 different uh, aromatic molecules in coffee, which is far greater than what you've been able to identify in wine. Uh, so it's, it's very, very complex as a product because you have both things from origin, but you also have all these byproducts from the roasting process. Um, so we look for that and we look for coffees that have character that will sort of bring something to the table. We don't want 10 coffees that taste the same. We want one coffee that's super fruity, another that's chocolatey, one that has a really light body and light mouthfeel and one that has a heavy mouthfeel, one that has huge acidity and one that's just floral. So try to map out like this flavor universe and have coffees that will move in, in different directions. Also to showcase to people that 
you might not like this coffee, but there will definitely be another coffee that might suit you more. Mm. So I'd, I'd love to move to the conversation into the part of then actually getting it to the consumer. And part of why I was so excited to have you on the show is that in the Nordics, we are some of the largest coffee consumers in the world. So whether you're having good coffee or bad coffee, instant coffee or specialty coffee, it is still a daily part of life, probably multiple times a day. So yeah. what is it that's happening when we talk about the coffee collective experience in the portfolio and the, the physical locations you have? Yeah, we, we really think there's a benefit for us having our own coffee shops and that we can bring the, the quality all the way to the, to the guest. We can ensure that, that the coffee is brewed as perfectly as, as we can think of, um, that we can make all these small adjustments on the grinders and everything that goes into creating what we think is the perfect cup at the end. But more so than that, also create a nice experience around it, uh, good hospitality, basically. Create nice frame to, to highlight the flavor quality uh, at the end. But it's also a way for us to test and play around with coffee and find new ways of brewing or new products, new product categories even um, that, that I think is also making coffee more interesting and fun for a broader audience because you know, not everybody will geek out and think a straight espresso is that fantastic. For a lot of people, it will be too intense. But then you can create something else that might cater to their taste buds a little better. Um, and I think for us, it's always been about trying to explore, like thinking about coffee not as this ancient beverage that has all this historical path, but rather think of coffee as kind of something new, something that's in its infant stage. Espresso, for example, is less than 100 years old. I mean, that's, that's nothing in the grand scheme of things. So to think that we nailed that, you know, 60 years ago, as the Italians apparently did, was completely wrong. Like wow. What has happened with espresso within the last 10 years is incredibly exciting and just shows that there's so much potential still to, to explore what coffee can be. Can you put a few words on that? Because I, for one, have no idea what's happened with espresso in the last 10 years. Yeah, I mean, when, when, when I started, people were you know, very intrigued about Italian espresso because it had crema on top. And it was like this strong, intense experience and it looked uh, amazing. But a lot of people didn't really drink it. And a lot of people put a lot of sugar in because it was super bitter. So they needed sugar to balance out that bitterness. And then over the years, we, all of us realized, well, there's more to it. You could actually like, take the way we approach this recipe was saying, well, there's certain things we like in filtered coffee. Like it's more delicate. It's more aromatic. Why don't we look for the same taste attributes in espresso? Let's look for more acidity, more clarity, more aromas and no bitterness. Let's try to minimize the bitterness and have natural sweetness. Um, and then a bunch of smaller things happened. Like we started to use scales to measure out how much water, how much coffee are we actually, what's the ratio between the two, uh, better machinery, more knowledge about what extraction actually is. Uh, I mean, we're, we're basically taking a solvent and taking flavor out of the coffee, just like you would do with perfume. But in espresso, we're also using pressure, kind of like an olive oil. And how, how does these factor affect the final cup profile in the end. As you can tell, this can get super geeky. There's like big books written on the subject. Um, awesome. But I think for us, the, the whole approach about just saying, well, we, let's, let's not act like we know it all. Let's act like we're just curious and we want to just create 
more better, more fun, more exciting coffee experiences, and then try to share that with mm. as many people as possible. Mm-hmm. And that is also what helps to create the demand, right? For better wages, better coffee, a better supply chain, a better way of doing this kind of business is getting people excited about it, that they're willing to pay, but also that they know what to pick and they know that that's the right thing to buy. And it's better to support this than something else. Exactly. And there's, there's value it for the consumers as well. I think for us, that was always important that it wasn't driven just by guilt or by a bad conscience, um, but rather say, well, you can actually drink this coffee, have a good co- conscience, but you also feel like you're actually getting more out of it. You're getting more flavor. You're getting more experience. It's just, it's, it's worth it for you. And that's how coffee is for a lot of people. It's a, it's a treat. It's a break away from a hectic day. It's, it's some of the few breaks they get throughout the day. And it's a treat that is, that is yeah, something that you, you just enjoy so much. Yeah, but it's something we all enjoy a lot. I feel you. I totally feel you. And so one thing I'd love to follow up on, because you have all these amazing ideas and things that you guys are putting into practice, is what would it look like for this to happen at scale and for this to really be the industry norm? I think it would look fantastic from a farmer point of view if everybody were paying the prices that we're paying. Um, of course, you know, we, as I mentioned before, we pay by quality and not all coffee warrants the, the prices that we are paying. But um, a lot of coffee warrants a much higher price than they're getting today. Um, I think that it's always been part of our wish is to not just be a tiny little company but to actually grow in size as well because it's actually born out of those farmer visits i think when we started out we were quite happy having a small roastery in one coffee shop but i remember so specifically one of the first time i I visited uh, kieni in kenya and we were able to buy 20 bags from the first year at a really high price and next year we bought 40 bags at a really high price some of the highest prices paid in kenya that year and they were so happy. They were like, oh, you doubled the amount. But it was still only 40 bags. And this year, we bought 300 bags at an even higher price than we paid back then. So there's this, you know, this feeling of, wow, we can actually make a change for these people that we're working with by growing in size back in Denmark, by not just limiting ourselves to being cozy and comfortable, but by saying, if we grow as a company, we can really make a bigger impact. For the, for the people at the other end. So that's been a huge motivator, a huge driver for us uh, in terms of growing the business. Mm. It's beautiful how it works together. And um, it's, it's, yeah, it's beautiful to think of a different way of doing business that can make globalization make sense in a good, <laughs> in a different yeah, way. And that's, I think, I mean, there, there's so much talk about sustainability these days. And I feel like sometimes the word is just so bland and misused. But for us, sustainability is, is looking at, at everything. It's like you can't just dive into uh, environmental sustainability and say, oh, if everything's organic, then it's perfect. If you're treating your staff like crap, then that's not sustainable in the long run. Mm-hmm. You also can't treat your staff great, be organic without being financial sustainable. So you have to find a business model where everything comes together and you can have your salaries being good for your staff. You can have your profit as you should as a private uh, company. Um, 
But I'm really proud about that we can do all those things while increasing the value we're bringing back to farmers. If we were only increasing that and not growing the company, not growing the future for our staff members and building a solid foundation that could also survive something like the corona pandemic, then I don't think it would be, uh, in my sense, sustainable. Mm -hmm. And you still have some ambitious targets that we didn't even touch upon yet, which is that by 2022, you want to be 100% carbon neutral. And like you said, it, we've been talking about this whole time about you know coffee production and what that looks like from seed to cup, but then you also have these other factors. So in what other ways are you thinking about sustainability, about equity, I guess, and those ideas? Yeah, we, I think like... I think for a long time, we've actually had a lot of initiatives, a lot of things we were doing behind the curtain. But all we talked about was this pricing back to the farmers because that's our number one battle, you can say. That's, that's what Your must-win battle. Yeah, exactly. But, um, but at the same time, we, we were one of the first companies to sign a union agreement for baristas uh, trying to professionalize that profession a lot more than, than what you see around and especially at that time, so around Copenhagen, where baristas might not even have a work contract, which by law they should have, but it was wow. like this black market almost. And, and we've been doing things like looking into uh, carbon emissions, as you mentioned. Um, we, we did a, some research and found a report saying that actually 40% of the carbon emissions that happen in coffee happens right here at the consuming end. Uh, it's easy to think that it's the transportation around the world that's the big sinner, but that's actually a very little part of it. The biggest part is us brewing coffee because we're using so much energy, boiling water. And for a large part in Denmark, that's not clean energy. We, I know we have a reputation that it is, but it actually isn't. So we switch all our energy supply to, uh, to wind power. Uh, actually bought shares in a, in a windmill uh, shareholder company. Um, to, to make sure that all our energy consumption is green in that way. Um, and then uh, two years ago, actually, uh, now we became a B Corporation, which I think is one of the best certifications of a company out there. Um, because unlike all the other certifications, especially in coffee, they're not product specific. They look at your whole organization. And it looks at a variety of dimensions, uh, environmental, um, social, communities, how you impact your communities, both locally, but in our case, also in, uh, in the other end of the world. Uh, it looks at your, your um, governance of your own company and uh, on your um, financial structure. There's over 200 questions as a company you have to, to answer and make a conscious decision about. And for us, that was a great way of... Uh, taking a grander look 360 degrees around our company and saying, well, what's, what are we doing in all these areas? The, the commitment to becoming a carbon net zero by next year was a direct consequence of that work. Um, and there's, yeah, there's multiple things we're working on like that. Uh, uh, so many incredible initiatives. Just to say, first off, I can't believe there wasn't a union also having heard you talk about the complexity that goes into doing this, the hard work, the science, like it's such a respected profession that to not even have a working contract and be, yeah, that's nuts. So thank you Pretty for sharing crazy, that. Right? Yeah. Totally. I mean, we've always had it, but uh, but uh, I, I know so many places in Copenhagen where it's like, 
yeah, you get like a 90 kronos under the table and it's like no it's guarantee for, for hours or yeah, all these basic terms. Yeah. And then I would love to understand in terms of where you are in the journey, because 2022 is around the corner. So in terms of reaching those goals, um, how, how are you doing? Yeah, I have to say we're we're uh, we're hard pressed now because uh, when we uh, when we committed to this 2022, it was part of B Corps globally, and I think I think they were quite ambitious, and they said either 2030 or 2025, and we thought, nah, it it has to be, it has to happen sooner. Like the world is melting, it's crazy. We have to get working on this now, um, and then Corona hit, and everything has been postponed quite a bit, but we're still determined that we will be carbon net zero or carbon neutral next year. Um, so we sat down, uh, we actually did uh, what's called Green Group or the Green Collective, a group of employees uh, led by one of our former baristas who is now um, a PhD uh, in, uh, I think it's called environmental science. So he knows a lot about these challenges uh, and is uh, tutoring other students now. Um, and he's heading up this group and they are, the first task with them was mapping out our um, emissions in every single aspect, which is an astronomical amount of work, uh, especially when you take on more scopes than just your own coffee shops, but you also start looking at transportation and you take the further scope, which is also producers. Um, and then they have uh, worked, after mapping that out, they worked a lot on uh, giving us advice on saying, well, here are the low-hanging fruits. What should we do immediately? What can we do? And what kind of strategy should we pursue? You can never not have any carbon emissions. So at some point, you're going to have to offset your emissions as well. And how do you do that uh, in the best possible way? Um, I can I can name all the, the many things that they've been working on, but, but some of the, the key things we're looking at our waste, our trash, um, Denmark has this, you know, uh, impression of being a very green country, but we're incredibly bad at sorting our trash, for example. And there are there's so much carbon emissions to be minimized if you start sorting your trash at at all levels and into every specific thing that you should sort it into. Um, so that was a, actually a bigger task than we just always thought. Oh, yeah, it's easy, sort the trash. Then we start looking at the coffee shop and we made like two trash cans. Like, okay, now we have to go back and redo that. And we have to actually weigh the trash to know how much are we throwing out. Uh, we looked at our packaging materials as well. And we're now introducing coffee bags that are made with the 50% recycled plastic. It cannot be 100% because the food authorities say the inner coating has to be new plastic for food uh, safety reasons. I'm not sure that's a legitimate claim, but that's what they say we have to do. But at least now the bags can be 100% uh, recycled as well. Um, so there's a lot of small things, a lot of details that they're working on. Uh, we're looking at our gas consumption for the roaster as well and all these uh, yeah, smaller things that, that they will dive into. Um, and then we're looking at offsetting as well, uh, looking into whether or not we should plant trees, buy a forest, um, convert uh, agricultural uh, landscape into uh, wild forestry or whatever's the best possible solutions out there. Mm. And we always want to make informed decisions rather than making bold claims. So whenever we start on something like this, we 
we don't want to go out and say, oh, now we're doing this because it sounds great as a marketing thing. We'd rather spend the time investigating where can we actually have a real impact before we go out and say anything. So, Which was exactly yeah. my next question. And I'm so glad you mentioned it because this is an exercise so many companies are taking on now. And I'm curious when you're trying to launch a new initiative, knowing that this is the kind of right thing to do, but the exact way to do it has to be tested and figured out. Also, that makes sense for the business. Um, do you have any guidelines you could pass on or anything like that in terms of how you trial something to then see if it's a good fit that you're going to scale it or scale it up? Yeah, we. I mean, we have the benefit of we have like now seven different outlets, seven different or six coffee shops and a bakery. So we can start out testing something in one coffee shop before we branch it out to the other coffee shops. But I also say advice to other companies is include your co-workers. So doing this uh, green group, inviting baristas, and a lot of them are studying uh, environmental science or similar things or have a keen interest in it. So inviting them in to be part of the solution rather than thinking the solution has to come from the top. I think there's so much benefit in that. It also makes you more open to to doing these changes and it makes your whole organization more adaptable to changes because suddenly there's people out there who have a stake in it. They have like, it's part, they're part of the journey, they're part of the process, so they feel a sense of ownership on it. And I think that thing actually goes back to a lot of our sort of culture in our company, maybe because Casper, Peter and I started as baristas. We started on the floor. We worked, I don't know how many hours serving coffee. So we have this, respect for that work. We know how important it is. We know how hard it is at times as well. And we know the value of having really good baristas. I mean, they're the, they're the last person in this long chain of people that have produced this coffee, as you can say, but they're the only one who get to face the final guest and create that experience and talk about the coffee. So we have a huge amount of respect for that, that work and involving people in these decisions, I think is, is, yeah, comes from that. And I think it's it, that would be my best advice to pass on to other organizations. And just as you've involved your coworkers, there's also so many partners involved in your business and collaborators. Is there one particular part, uh, partnership or collaboration that you're most proud of? I really have a hard time picking one because <laughs> there are so many. I would say the partnerships we have with some of the farms, I'm so proud about. The fact that we are on our, I guess, our 14th year of business now. And we are buying still from the same farm that was the first farm in Guatemala, Vista Hermosa, mm. uh, that we bought from. And we have this, we know the family, we know them so well. They've been to visit us multiple times and we've been to visit them every year. And having that feeling of, uh, we're on this together. And when they had a completely rubbish year where 40, no, more 60% of their production or even more, was wiped out due to something called coffee leaf rust. I mean, they went from exporting 400 bags of coffee to only having 40 bags in one year. That year, we came through for them, for them and bought all their coffee at a really high price. The quality didn't actually warrant the price. We said, well, this is important. Now is the time to show up for them. And then feeling the loyalty back from them in the coming years that we have had first picks of all their coffee. We are the ones who get to, to pick all the best qualities. Mm -hmm. That makes me incredibly proud about uh, what we've achieved. And especially whenever the coffee sells out, because we work with seasonality in coffee, so coffee might not be in the menu for the whole year. 
we, whenever that coffee sold out, we have so many people asking, when is Mr. Hermosa coming back on the menu? Mm. That feels so great that it's not, it's, as I said in the beginning, it's not a commodity. It's not interchangeable. They want that coffee. They love that. They, they know that farmer. And yeah, so I'm really mm. proud about that. And I think it just goes to show that so much of business is relationships, one with the colleagues you have in the everyday, but also the people that you work with all over the world and in every part. And when we lose that sense of knowing who each other are, that's when things tend to break down. Yeah. Mm. So I'd love to ask you the last couple of questions that I ask everyone now. The first one's big, and it's what is your vision for the future of food in 10 to 15 years? If we, if we talk food in general and sort of broaden the scope, we don't just talk coffee. I really think that, or I would really hope, and it, it might be a foolish wish, but that, that there's more of an interaction between consumers and producers, between people who eat food and the farmers who make that food, that we gain more knowledge and, and more sense of connection with who's actually producing our food. Um, I think supermarkets to a large extent you know, are great because it makes it convenient for people to buy a lot of things without spending too much time in a, in a hectic day. But it's such a pity that people don't know what is in season. Where does this come from? What would taste good right now? I mean, people come in the beginning of the summer expecting to buy corn when Danish corn isn't harvested until the very end of the summer. And it's one of those things like, come on, we should know this. We should be educated about that. And I think the more sort of knowledge about raw materials and how it's produced, that will really benefit the, the food system uh, on a broader scale. Mm. And what are, you, what are we missing to get there and to make that reality happen? Well, I think we're missing education. We're missing basic knowledge about how food comes to be. Uh, we're missing that connectivity. Uh, we have kids who've never been to a farm who has never seen a pig or a cow, but they're used to eating burgers and pork chops all the time. They have no idea where it comes from. Um, I think if we could have more connectivity, have more kids growing vegetables, uh, getting their hands in soil and pulling out a carrot from the ground and rubbing the dirt off in their pants and tasting that and, and not being afraid of the, the good bacteria in the soil, I think that would uh, be a good starting point for us uh, to change how the, the food system is uh, at large. And then hopefully that could be a, a part of changing away from these multinational companies having so much power over what we eat. Mm. That would be a wish. The connection to food is definitely so important. And um, as we were talking about before, as Eureka food moments, or as I call them, foodgasms, where you really have a taste experience that you're like, wow, mind blown. I've heard people similarly describe the experience of first pulling a carrot out of the ground, which so many of us have never actually harvested something from the earth, but it's a pretty normal thing to do. And that can be a similar, very powerful experience to have to understand where your food comes from and how it's made. So I just wish more people could come to Origin and try to pick coffee. <laughs> yeah. That would be fun. <laughs> That's good. And the other thing I always love to do is to ask what kind of collaborations you might be looking for. We have listeners now from 70 countries around the world, so you never know who's listening and who might be able to write in and help you. So is there anything that you're looking for if somebody can pay it forward? 
We are really always looking. This is one of the things that I find the most exciting in coffee. As, as I mentioned earlier, that it's a new product. It's it is something, there's so much to investigate out there. We've had great success with doing a coffee kombucha together with a Danish company called Lesk, that was a complete new category of, of beverages. Uh, we've made a coffee soft ice that has been copied all around the world since uh, we launched it. And so right now, I think what we're mainly looking for is more uh, ready-to-drink uh, coffee beverages. Um, the whole uh, RTD segment has grown tremendously elsewhere in the world. And there's so many, you know, coffee-ish beverages on the market in Denmark. But I'd love to do something with, you know, really good, well-sourced, well-paid uh, coffees that taste great, uh, not full of artificial things. Um, but it's actually a very complicated thing to do on a big scale. Um, so we have done some things with other companies, but, uh, but that's definitely something that uh, would be good to get help with. Mm. That and then is espresso brewing on a grand scale. Because espresso right now is, is being brewed, you know, one shot at a time or maybe a double shot. But it's like you get a final beverage that's like two ounces in size. It's like tiny someone who could help us develop something where we could brew like that on a on a big scale that would be super super cool so if any listeners out there are sitting on a great idea please please reach out that would be fun and how should they reach out what's the best way to get in touch i'm readily uh, available through instagram facebook uh, linkedin um, write me an email on klaus at coffeecollective.dk um yeah i'm I'm easy to get to. And before we wrap up, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you'd like to mention? No, no. I mean, I, oh, I can talk for days about all this, especially when I get excited about it. It's like, uh, yeah, I think the only thing that uh, I think for us as a company, we put a lot of emphasis on our staff as well. Um, and I think if I look at like the restaurant industry, I think there's a lot of room for, for growth, a lot of potential for improvement in that industry. Um, we've had staff who's been here, uh, Rasmus, who's actually walking out here. He's been here for 10 years now. And 10 years in this business is remarkable. Um, and he's not alone. We have the next 10 years coming up in a couple of months, actually. Uh, so we have a lot of staff who stayed on for a long time. And I think that's, uh, it provides a lot of value to us, but it's also, it, it just makes it seem again more sustainable in the long run if we can make this a life project for not just the three owners but for everybody in the company and we actually gave rasmus uh, ownership in the company as part of his 10-year anniversary so that's also a path that i think is really exciting to say hey it's not not just for us it's it's for for all our staff to be part of this journey and what is that culture that you've built what's the essence of it or the principles I think the principle is that we're, we are all part of this. We're working not just for profit. We're working for improving lives at the other end, but also for making it fun for people in Copenhagen, making it an exciting thing to, to come into a coffee shop. Um, and I think when you can tie those things together, that you have this, the hospitality, the service part of it, the enjoyment, uh, the flavors, but cover with something that actually has a little deeper meaning, mm. a little more profound effect. Um, I think that's what making it so purposeful for people to, to be part of this. And I have to ask related to that, because you said in the industry, there's many things that one 
could improve. And I'm just curious, what are some of the things there that you've done differently where you go, this is, this is another model similar to so many of the other areas we've been talking about. I think prioritizing our staff uh, has been a good investment in a lot of ways. And to give an example, when, when Corona hit the world, and I know that you're probably bored to death hearing about Corona, but when that hit, we were, as, as all other companies, in panic. Like, what does this mean? Do we need to close down? Are we out of business? And we decided to just wait a couple of weeks before doing anything drastic and just see what, what is the actual effect? What is the government going to come in with a health package or stuff like that? And at the same time, we actually saw restaurants firing all their staff on day one because that was their way of minimizing their risk. Instead of just waiting maybe a couple of weeks and say, okay, yeah, you're going to lose two weeks uh, salary, but is that really so bad? Mm. Um, and then when the care packages came in, we could still see, okay, we're still going to lose a lot of money. But again, being a sustainable company, as I said, means that you should also think about your finances. You should think about having a buffer. If you're always stretched, it's going to be really problematic when a crisis comes up. And this was probably the perfect storm of a crisis coming up. We sat down on a board level and looked each other in the eye and said, if we can go through this without firing a single staff member and not having um, a minus uh, at the end, then we are, that's a complete success. So we're yeah. willing to lose all our profits. That's totally fine. That's just profits. We still get a salary. And if people get a salary, we will come out so much stronger on the other end of it. And... I think that was such a solid investment because it showed everybody that we actually mean what we say and we yeah. actually follow up on it and we do what we preach. Um, and the sense of loyalty coming back from our staff after gives me goosebumps just as I'm talking about it, actually, because you could really feel that people felt like, okay, they're, they're here for us and they mean it. Um, and I think that's the kind of, that's the kind of culture you can't buy and you can't make up with a CSR strategy and, and all these other things. That is, that is if you truly respect your colleagues and you feel like yeah, you want to go into the trenches with them, then uh, I think that creates a completely uh, different culture than, than what you typically see around, especially in this kind of business. Do you think this kind of culture and uh, I'll call it doing the right thing by each other is possible to scale as you continue to grow? Absolutely. Definitely. I think that respect for what it means to be a new barista who comes in and might only work part-time because you're studying next to it, to, to look at that person and say, hey, great, you're, we know this is not going to be your life for the next 20 years, maybe. Maybe it will. Maybe you get sucked into it like we did. But it's also totally great that you want to spend the next three or four years working part-time with us. Super cool. Let's give you all the knowledge necessary for that. And in return, you bring in new enthusiasm and you get to uh, dive into this, this world. And there's so many people who think this is interesting and fun. Um, I mean, I've been working in this, what, like over 20 years now, which is like half my life, basically. And I still go to work every day thinking, ah, there's something new I can learn today. There's something more to, to know about coffee. I feel like I'm still scratching the surface, knowing what the farmers are actually working on. So if I can still have that, then I'm sure it's something that we can, can scale to a lot more people. And similarly, it sounds like there's a model of what a career path can look like for a barista. That might be how you come in, but the ability to grow with the company or say, 
I don't know exactly how it works internally, so I'd love to hear, but how you can switch to another business department or do a different job, or if you come with an idea as part of the green team, you know, how do you, yeah, how exactly. do you support that, those interests? Also, yeah. Cause that's also actually part of our, uh, sort of drive for growing the businesses that will create more of these opportunities for people. If, if they don't see themselves being behind the bar for many years. I would say a lot of them actually do. A lot of them grow into first sous chef's position and then bar manager positions. And we have bar managers who've been bar managers for eight and nine years now. And they're growing because they're also learning about leadership. They're going to courses and challenging themselves and they get to train new sous chefs and see the effect of that and know that they, they get control of that coffee shop and, and that's basically their business as well. So that sense of ownership, again, is, is important. And then, of course, you can go to other departments if you want to that. We have had baristas who've become roasters and we have had baristas who've become responsible for buying coffee from different countries and so on. So there's, there's all these, again, because it's such a complex product, there's all these things you can dive into and you can challenge yourself with. Mm-hmm. I'm sure when you started that first day, you, <laughs> I can only imagine... Uh, what you were thinking that day versus where you are now and how much it's grown and how many areas you're tackling. I remember one of my first coffee impressions actually was at, at Starbucks in that first job. And it was sitting down with, with the store manager and we had to do a coffee tasting. And there was three cups in front of me. And I was tasting them. And I remember, I can't taste the difference. I was like, what the hell? Like, do you need to be like a sommelier or like a super taster to get anything out? And I, I kind of panic. I can taste maybe a little bit of a difference. And it wasn't until years later I realized, well, if you roast everything that dark, you can't taste any difference because it's all tastes the same. So looking back at that and looking what I know now, it's, yeah, it's been a life-changing experience getting sucked into coffee. Mm, that's beautiful. It's exciting to think about what all the possibilities are. And thank you for sharing the journey you've been on over these years um, I, I hope everyone enjoys this conversation as much as I did. Thank you. Well, thank you for uh, having me and thanks to all the listeners for listening. All right, that's all for today. You can find the show notes and more episodes at nordicfoodtech.io. And if you like what you hear, please be generous and take the time to rate the show or share it on social media. This is all about creating better food solutions and we can't do that without your help. I'm Annalisa Winther and let's spread the word about the Nordic Food Tech ecosystem together. See you next time.